Good evening and welcome to this CNBC special, Markets in Turmoil. I'm Frank Holland. It was an ugly finish to an ugly week for the bull. Stocks selling off right from the open today. At one point, the Dow was down over 800 points. By the end, the major averages closed well off their session lows, but that did not stop the Dow from finishing at its worst levels of the year, closing at its lowest level since November of 2020. The S&P for the week fell over 4.5%. The Nasdaq, it tumbled over 5%. Joining me now, Mike Santoli with a closer look at today's action. Mike? Yeah, Frank, and really it's uh, kind of more of the same, only more so. A lot of the issues the market's been contending with for a while, being unsettled by what the Federal Reserve is telling the markets it's going to do with continuing to hike interest rates in an aggressive way. That was since Wednesday's Fed meeting. Market has been back on its heels with an extra little wrinkle that bond yields having been pushed even higher today and the U.S. dollar pushed even higher today uh, as global yields ran up uh, the United, United Kingdom with a big fiscal stimulus and tax cut package crashing the British pound. That all moves in the same direction, which is to say financial conditions tightening. It's sapping the uh, willingness of investors to take more risks and it's raising uh, further fears that the economy can't handle these higher rates and, uh, and the dollar doing what it's doing. So everything priced in dollars went down. That includes stocks, bonds and oil cr- uh, closing below $80 a barrel down to early January levels. As a matter of fact, good news uh, for consumers, but not enough to offset what it might mean for the overall economy. So, Mike, we've been on the air a lot of times talking about technicals here and also whether this is a bull market rally in recent weeks. Today, we saw the indexes break through their June lows, but the S&P had actually finished above it. We saw it break through their June lows intraday. Are we seeing any signs from a technical standpoint or some other way that we're actually near a bottom or maybe we even hit that bottom today? Yeah, I mean, there's some of the ingredients of what you would uh, take to say is the evidence of a bottoming process in the market. The problem is um, it's only really clear in retrospect. In other words, if the market were going to fail at this level and go to lower lows, below where we finished in June at the uh, at the lows there, uh, it would kind of look similar to what it is now. But you do see some encouraging signs of just the overall washout levels of volume that we got today. You had 1,000 or more stocks in the New York Stock Exchange make a new 52-week low. That is extreme. So sometimes when you do get just that intense concentrated selling pressure, people will just want out at any price, that sometimes is one of the inputs uh, to a bottoming process on a technical basis. Sentiment is also quite negative. That's another precursor to uh, a rebound. The issue is all of the rallies that have started this year from a similar point when things looked really oversold, they did carry higher, some of them by 20% in June into August, but it ran into this, this notion that the Fed seems to want to engineer a severe slowdown in the economy and corporate earnings have a hard time growing in that environment if that's what we're headed into. All right, Mike Santoli, we appreciate it. Yeah. All right, the stock sell-off being driven by rising rates in the Fed's third 75 basis point hike earlier this week. In the decision, the central bank indicated it plans to do the same at its November meeting, but many on the street are worried the Fed's hawkishness has just gone too far. Let's listen to what Wharton's Jeremy Siegel had to say earlier today. It's like a pendulum. They were way too easy, as I've told you and many others, through 2020, 2021. And now, oh my God, you know, we're going to be real tough guys until we crush the economy. I mean, that that is just to me absolutely um, poor monetary policy would be an understatement. All right, Professor Siegel, with some strong words there. Joining me now is our own Steve Leisman, CNBC senior economics reporter. We just heard what the professor said. Steve, what's your take? 
You know, investors this week, Frank, got hit by from central banks from all sides. They were pummeled in the present with big rate hikes. They were battered in the future with promises of more rate hikes to come and sharply downgraded economic forecasts. And they were beaten from overseas with rate hikes around the world. Take a look, Frank. There was really no place to hide from rising rates. The U.K., up by 50 basis points. Three of the nine voters wanted to go 75. Norway, Indonesia, both up by 50. The Swiss, up by 75. Japan, they left rates unchanged but intervened in their markets. Only Turkey, in the face of 80% inflation, cut rates by 100 basis points. Their currency weakened substantially. Here in the U.S., as Frank said, the Fed's third 75 basis point rate increase, accompanied by a much higher outlook for future rate increases. The median Fed forecast for rates next year rose to 4.6%. It had been 3.8%. And the key may have been Fed Chair Powell saying he was not inclined to pause even amid economic pain. There is a possibility, certainly, that we would go to, go to a certain level that we've, we're confident in and, and stay there for a time. Um, but we're not at that level. Clearly today, we're, you know, we're just, uh, we, we've just moved, I think, probably into the very, the very lowest level of what might be restrictive. And, and certainly in my view and in the view of the committee, there's, uh, there's uh, a ways to go. Today's, today's sell-off brought on by a new worry, plans for tax cuts in Britain and massive new deficit spending. It signaled that there would be little help to force central banks from the fiscal side and in bringing inflation down. To the contrary, looks like governments are going to continue spending. So you got higher rates, bigger deficits, and less economic growth. All that combining, Frank, to create a one, two, three punch for investors knocking markets on their global heels. Yeah, certainly. We've got the referee looking over the markets right now. So, Steve, next week we have PCE coming up. That's often called the Fed's favorite gauge of inflation. Any chance that could lead to some type of change in plans? Of course, all these rate hikes were supposed to calm down inflation. You know, we're talking about knockouts here, Frank. What happens is the, the countdown keeps being reset, right? We started the countdown in June we had a, or July. We had a better report. Lousy in August, we had to start again. If you have a better inflation report, then we can start counting the months that are needed to get there. But right now, uh, there's no give from Powell, and markets have finally picked that up, and they're starting to readjust the value of stocks relative to a Fed that's not only high but going higher and probably going to hold there for a while. So without the data going softer, inflation coming down, unemployment going up, hard for me to see much relief in sight. All right, our Steve Leisman, senior economics reporter, we appreciate that insight. For more on how to navigate rising rates and where to find opportunities amid all this ongoing volatility, I want to bring in Peter Bookvar of Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor, along with fast money trader Tim Seymour. Also joining me for the hour is Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares. Gentlemen, thank you all for being here. Thank you. Simeon, I want to start with you. You and I were actually <laughs> chatting before the show. Um, we're seeing, obviously, turmoil in the markets. Where are you looking at for opportunities right now? The challenge is, of course, rising rates and inflation. And I think what people get almost backwards in the equity markets is they say, OK, if interest rates are rising, I guess I have to have short duration bonds. And then the overgeneralization is, well, I guess I should have short duration equities, except if you think that through, that means equities that aren't really growing. And that doesn't really make any sense because the only the, the salvation of equities is, of course, growth. And if you're looking for growth, one of the best sources of that is growth of dividends because that's the thing you can't fake. I mean, the S&P 500 shrank its margins. Top line grew in the first and second quarter, but margins shrank. But if you look at stocks that have consistently grown their dividends, 
you see actual margin expansion, and that can be a real asset in this environment. All right, so Peter, over to you. You had a note out today looking at the violent moves in bonds and currency. Are the opportunities right now in bonds, is that where investors should look for yield? Well, yeah, for the first time in, in, in years, we, we have interest rates to actually capture. Uh, but I do think that from a duration standpoint, investors still need to be uh, wary of longer-term bonds. I think short-term bonds are, are really attractive. I mean, the two-year Treasury note yielding 410, 415, uh, while it's still well below the rate of inflation, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a, a yield that I think uh, people should take advantage of. Uh, I don't think the Fed is going to get the Fed funds rate much above 4%. And I think in the next couple of years, they're going to be cutting interest rates, maybe not back down to zero. But uh, I, I think the short end of the Treasury yield curve is, is very attractive. And also, the tips market has been re-rated downwards. Everyone just assumes that inflation is going to quickly go to 2%-ish, 25 maybe, over the next uh, 5 to 10 years. And I think that's optimistic. So I think there's also opportunities uh, in the tips market as well. So, Tim, I saw you nodding when you talked about the tips, Mark, but I want to talk to you about something we've been talking about on CNBC probably for a lot uh, this year. Tina, there is no alternative to stocks. Has that, inc- has that narrative completely changed with what we've seen today? Well, so what equity markets did today and the spike in the VIX and the things that were part of this, this central bank madness week, but t- this today was about policy error. This today was where equities uh, and currency markets, frankly, and, and, and I guess, you know, bond markets like UK gilts, uh, you know, you look at what they did, the Reaganomics in the UK, and you look at the dynamics here of, of where we've seen central banks, investors are fearful of policy error. And, and, and that, to me, is a place where obviously people are estimating, you know, and different asset classes, where is there room to run and hide? If you look at, you know, Peter's, Peter's right. I mean, look, between, you know, probably around 18 months out on, on the Treasury curve, um, relative value and duration-wise is a pretty interesting place to be. When you listen to the Fed this week in, in, in Powell's uh, testimony or his comments after the announcement, there was questions and, and ultimately asked, does the Fed want to get to positive real rates before they even pause? And, and we all can do that math. That's where equity markets are, again, talking about and concerning over policy error. So, um, yes, there are alternatives. And I, I would just point out that consumer staple stocks, look at the week that, that General Mills had. Look at Kellogg's. Look at Colgate-Palmolive. Again, they are growing their dividends. They are free cash flow generating companies. Yes, they are expensive, but we've seen this before. And I, and I think these companies will trade expensive because they're they're maybe no other alternatives in the equity market than finding the best companies. And I actually do think you should be short duration equity. I don't want to be in high multiple stocks. I don't want to be buying growth here. I just don't No, not wholesale. Um, but I think the market is telling you that we still haven't worked through the pain uh, of where interest rates go. So I understand what you're saying. You want to stay defensive right now, looking at those consumer staple stocks. Are there any other individual stocks you can identify right now? I know I'm putting you a bit on the spot no, where people can run and hide. I mean, if you look at, the, at what happened today, Home Depot, the best performer in the Dow and the S&P. I, I like Home Depot. I think Home Depot uh, on the charts and I look at, you know, I have levels on a lot of stocks. I, I'd like to own it closer to 245 than I want to own it here. And we may get there pretty quickly. But um, I look at the energy sector, which was thrown out the window today. And, and again, I'll get back to the same thesis. A company like like Chevron or a company like like, you know, like Diamondback or, or you know, they're going to pay 25 percent of market cap in free cash flow this year. And they're going to give it out to investors. The payout rates in the energy sector are, are substantially higher than they've ever been and probably higher than almost any other sector. These are companies that are run differently. So there are opportunities for investors in this marketplace. And, and I would also point out that we've had 
uh, eight or nine moves of plus or minus 8% in the S&P already this year. I mean, there have been trading ranges. It's nothing is predictable except in hindsight, except for the fact that we have had opportunities to, to be trading around ranges and important events. And I think investors uh, should not lose sight of those opportunities. All right, Peter, we got to get moving. I want to give you one last word before we go. I actually agree with Tim on the, on the, on the energy stocks, uh, and he makes the right point that the free cash flow yields, even at $80 oil, uh, $6, $7 natural gas, uh, is in the 20-plus percent range. So these sharp pullbacks, because people are panicking about the price of oil, which I understand because they're worried about the demand side, uh, I, I think the supply side is so crimped that um, prices aren't going to fall that much further from here. All right, Peter and Tim, thanks for being here. Simi, you're sticking around with me for the hour. We're going to talk much more with you. All right, all of you at home, don't go anywhere. This CNBC special, Markets in Turmoil, it's just getting started. Stay with us. Coming up, Markets in Turmoil. Pick your spots with what's still working in tech. Plus, instability reigns. Are big returns hiding in the emerging markets? And gas up for the road ahead. We give some fuel for thought to the energy plays when we return on CNBC. And welcome back to the CNBC special Markets in Turmoil. Tech stocks getting swept up in the market route. Only 12 stocks in the Nasdaq 100 closed higher today. For the week, the Nasdaq's down about 5% and off 30% for the year. One of the sector's most critical areas, the semiconductors or the chips, they had a new 52-week low. Our Christina Partsinevelis is at the Nasdaq with a breakdown. Christina. Well, chips actually weren't the biggest drag on the Nasdaq 100 today, but their underperformance is just really too hard to ignore. And names like LAM, Applied Materials, Broadcom are all about just 2% off their one-year lows. AMD and NVIDIA, the actual Worst performers on the year, down 50%. Look at that, 57% lower for NVIDIA. And so management has acknowledged consumer and market weakness, I think, in smartphones and PCs. And we consider that cyclical risk. But we're still waiting for the ball to drop in cloud and enterprise. Frank, I know you cover this quite a bit, as well as auto. And inventory days are sitting above the high end of historical ranges, which means companies need to rebalance their chip orders, possibly cutting them. And that's just some of the reasons why analysts are finally trimming their estimates. For example, Morgan Stanley today trimmed its AMD price target to 95 bucks. They lowered it. They say the PC market is going to be even worse than predicted. And then Goldman Sachs, in another note today, reduced revenue and earnings per share estimates for memory makers Micron and Western Digital, citing weaker chip prices. So if you're watching right now, where should you put your money if everything's falling down to 52-week lows? If you're worried about cyclical trends, Broadcom is actually sitting on record back logs, which means that orders still need to be filled. While support seems to be holding up for foundries, think of those like manufacturing hubs, and Global Foundries is the only pure play one here in the United States. And look at that up 22% just in the past three months or so. So given this massively negative investor sentiment and positioning, the chip correction, unfortunately, still much like a lot of tech, expected to continue beyond the upcoming earnings season, which, by the way, Micron is coming out next Thursday. That's the latest. All right, so, Christina, I heard you mention the auto sector. You mentioned chip prices are going down, but one thing that's definitely not going down are auto prices. 
Isn't there a chip supply issue in our companies like Qualcomm? Are they betting big on this sector and our need for chips, especially with electric vehicles? Yeah, I think that uh, the chip supplies issue with auto within the auto sector is going to be something studied in supply management classes because the automakers, when the pandemic hit, they thought people weren't going to buy cars, so they cut all their orders, and then they realized everybody's buying cars, so they rushed to reorder, but they had already fallen behind in the line because consumer electronics took that place. So then the automakers started double, triple ordering, and so now a lot of the chip makers need to sift through and figure out which of those orders are real. Right. Speaking of chip makers for auto, Qualcomm is an excellent example. They hosted their auto day yesterday, which I went to. I even got to chat with the CEO. And they believe their total addressable market, so total revenue, just in eight years will hit $100 billion just within auto revenue because they think that they can provide anywhere between $200 to $3,000 worth of chips in one particular car. So definitely betting big. We'll see if that actually holds up because $100 billion is a big number. Yeah, you know, I know chips are your forte. Another thing you've been covering is lithium. Um, prices for that spiking and also other tech commodities, a lot of people call them. How does that impact these chip makers? Oh, that's a great. Well, with lithium in particular, it's more how does that in, impact all of the batteries? Because lithium, you can't really replace it. We've seen lithium prices triple just in the last year alone. And that's benefiting some of the producers and miners, even though we don't have as many in the United States. Uh, in regards to chip makers, it's you don't necessarily need lithium for a lot of the chips. So that would be a different thing. It's more for the batteries. So to answer your question, I would say the battery makers have an opportunity but yet we're still seeing major weakness with lithium makers. Upside potential, though. There is a lot of upside potential. Even Elon Musk. Remember, right. uh, you remember, like, uh, two months ago said he wanted to mine lithium, and there's a lot of big bucks to be made in that sector. Yeah, a lot of money being lithium and also neon, which does impact the chip oh, sector. Oh, yeah. Neon Talk Christina. Well. <laughs> Thank you very much. We appreciate Thanks. the insight. All right, we're going to stick with tech and go hunting for opportunities in that beaten down sector. Joining us right now, Paul Meeks, portfolio manager at Independent Solutions Wealth Management, along with our own Deirdre Bosa. Thanks, both of you, for being here right now. Good to see you. So, Deirdre, I'm going to start with you. I mean, we're looking at tech, but tech's a broad term. You have high growth tech and you have mega cap tech. How are each one of these uh, performing right now as we see the sell off? Well, simply put very differently, mega caps have been holding up better all year. And that's been the same over the last few weeks, too, with this leg down as we get close to those June lows. And that is really propping up the broader market from even more losses. I mean, a name like Apple makes up more than 7% of the S&P 500. And it's actually a relative outperformer this year, even compared to the other mega caps. So if it can stay strong, maybe losses can be limited. However, you could see some cracks emerge. Uh, Frank, we're going to be looking at cloud growth from the likes of Microsoft, Amazon, and Alphabet this year. You asked about unprofitable tech as well. And these are some of the worst names this year. Um, names like Zoom, Datadog, uh, DocuSign, the darlings of the pandemic. We know very well that they've been hurt this year. They're hurt by rising interest rate. That continues. And the question for investors is, now they look cheaper, but do they look cheap? And that's what I think everyone's trying to figure out here. Yeah, a lot of valuations cut. Paul, over to you. You actually have some picks for us. Uh, you have some picks on semi in the chip sector, something Christina covers. Also, Harmonic and Palo Alto, a cybersecurity stock. I want to start with Palo Alto. Is cybersecurity one of those places that investors can hide? We're hearing so much commentary about the need for cybersecurity as part of this cloud transition. So unfortunately, you're never going to be able to hide completely. But I do think within the tech sector, yes, that is a focal area. Yes, it will continue to grow, relatively speaking. 
uh, much more quickly than the rest of the sector. Now, Palo Alto Networks versus my other two picks is actually a rather expensive stock. But uh, this one, I feel very comfortable that will continue to not only make the numbers, but beat the numbers. And you can't say that about too many tech names. All right. We just covered chips a minute ago, Paul. But let's just talk about your other pick, Harmonic, in the server and router space. Um, if we're facing some type of recession or downturn, does this business remain strong? Harmonic's interesting because it's video and cable access uh, gear and uh, more and more software, which brings with it increasing margins. And so here is a rare story where regardless of recession conditions, we'll see the top line grow this year and next 20% with margin expansion, earnings per share growing 40%. And even though the stock has done very well this year, it's down 6% versus down almost 60% for something like uh, the big boy in the space, NVIDIA. The stock is still only trading at 15 times earnings, which is even less than the S&P 500's multiple. So, Deirdre, back over to you. We talked about high growth tech a second ago, but it's not all created equal. Some of the, one of the areas that you cover is rideshare uh, and other consumer facing tech mm -hmm. and also food delivery. Where does that go from here right now as we face potential recession and also some of their costs going up because the labor market is still overheated? Well, these names are largely included in that unprofitable tech business. However, they have a little bit of a different edge because they're not strictly software companies. And the likes of Uber and Lyft are part of this reopening play. Um, as you see more conferences, especially here in San Francisco, um, they're seen as beneficiaries. However, their valuations have been beaten down as well. And it's the same question. Where should they be valued? Are these still tech companies even? That is something that we've been asking for ages, basically since their IPOs. Another interesting thing, though, because we have talked to a bunch of CEOs in this space over the last few weeks, like Brian Chesky of Airbnb, Dara Khazar-Shahi of Uber, uh, Tony Hsu of DoorDash, they say that the consumer remains resilient. So you have seen these names hold up a little bit better, but again, there's still these sort of growth unprofitable tech names. Um, and that's also important, of course, for where the Fed is going to go, where the economy is going to go. The consumer to them, right. at least the data they track remains resilient. The Fed may want to see more pain. So Deirdre, you've done so much coverage of this high growth stock. A lot of people are going to ask with valuations really slashed, is this the time to jump in? Is this possibly the, the time to buy the dip? You know what? We've been having this discussion a lot on air on Tech Check. And I guess my takeaway from a lot of the folks we'd be talking to, people with skin in the game, investors, they say look for your industry leaders. Those are the ones that are going to sort of emerge from this recession. The ones that have been through this before, like a Microsoft or a Salesforce, um, companies that are sitting on cash as well. So they can actually be offensive when a lot of tech has to be defensive, preserve cash, make cost cuts. So maybe that's where you look. But again, those industry leaders, you see some of those in cybersecurity as well that have fared a little better. All right. Speaking of things coming back to in-person, Dreamforce out there in the Bay it was pretty hard to find a, a Lyft or an Uber out there. All right, Deirdre and Paul, thank you very busy. much. Thanks for being here. Thank All you. Right, energy opportunity and a look at, ahead to what could drive the action next week in your portfolio. The CNBC special, Markets in Turmoil, will continue right after this. And welcome back to the CNBC special, Markets in Turmoil. The dollar index closing out its best week since March of 2020, hitting levels not seen since 2002. And that is pressuring emerging markets. The MSCI ETF is down nearly 5% this week. Our Seema Modi is assessing the damage. Seema. 
Hey, Frank, Mexico, China's Shenzhen, Hong Kong, and Russia,、uh, they're among the emerging markets trading 20% below their respective highs. So that just puts into perspective where we're seeing the pressure. Capital Economics, the team there, writing that inflows into emerging markets have dropped sharply over the past few weeks as the US dollar has been on a tear. They go on to say that external financing is likely to remain challenging in this environment, posing a threat to Turkey, Chile, and parts Of Central Europe, so those are the part; those are the parts of the world to watch as rates rise. And then there's the developed nations acting like emerging markets. Case in point, Japan, a fresh 24-year low against the dollar. That's for the Japanese yen, adding immense pressure to its economy, sending stocks lower there.、Uh, Jim Bianco today, Frank, saying that the negative effect of higher interest rates here in the U.S. on the rest of the world could start to influence the Fed in upcoming meetings if. Start to show up in economic data, the manufacturing surveys, and, and consumer confidence, among other data points. Frank. All right, Simon. Great stuff on emerging markets, but I also want to ask you about the United Kingdom. The pound sterling plunging to its lowest level against the dollar since 1985, after the UK government announced some sweeping tax cuts. Yeah, this is pretty surprising. The key objective of those tax cuts were to spur economic growth. However, the size and scale of this package, in addition to the energy incentives already outlined by the UK government a week ago, is really spooking investors, and that's leading to fresh selling of the British pound, the biggest one-day sell-off against the dollar today, and just adding to concerns facing Europe.、Uh, Signal, a European special situation fund,、uh, telling me the distressed opportunities are increasing across the broader. European continent, not a good sign. Certainly, bringing back、uh, some some bad memories of the debt crisis. Frank, Arsima Modi, we know you're on top of it. Thank you again. I want to bring him back in, Simeon Highland.、Uh, Simeon, you just heard Sima talking about emerging markets. One thing I've been looking at、uh, in my area of covering cloud and enterprise is that the dollar's risen eight percent in Q3. What does that do to emerging markets? Look, I come from a trust company background, and you usually say, "Hey." You shouldn't really zero out any piece of the equities or any of the market segment because you might be wrong. But this is really an environment where emerging markets, and of course, what we see in Europe and the UK, it is a time where focusing on the domestic opportunity may very well be、uh, the way to play equities these days. It's almost like a mini version of post World War II. When the U.S. had an advantage for 20 or 30 years because the rest of the world was in such disarray until companies like Germany and Japan caught back up, so I think there's a real opportunity to tilt the portfolio domestically. And what that also tells you in the U.S. is you might want to tilt down in market cap because you get a little bit of a more domestic focus. And the extra benefit there is, of course, that mid and small cap stocks have underperformed for a decade. So they're still really cheap, even though fundamentally they're performing much better than large caps so far this year. You know, we often bring up the issues for a lot of stocks when the dollar gets stronger. Are there any other areas or particular stocks you would look at that actually benefit from this stronger dollar? Well, you know, back from back into the the sector comparison and the intersection of sectors and market capitalization. So I would actually agree. Um, with some of the earlier folks who were saying there's still opportunity in energy, but I think there's also opportunity、uh, in financials, and it's apart from the again, but focusing domestically because you don't want the headline risk and you don't want the risk of the dollar the dollar strengthening and harming some of the overseas opportunities. So if you put that all together, one of the sweet spots these days is actually 
mid-cap financials. Think of a company like Bank of the Ozarks. And you remember, these, these were companies that did pretty well in the great financial crisis. So, you know, their business models are simpler. Um, I know people are a little worried about the inversion of the yield curve. Uh, we're not as worried. Quantitative tightening is likely to bring up those longer-end uh, longer yields a little bit more. So I think there's a real opportunity there as well. All right, looking at the dollar chart right there, up 21% over the last year. All right, this CNBC special, Markets in Turmoil. We'll be right back. Tonight, crude realities. Where should you be putting your energy? Plus, diamonds in the rough. Finding opportunities amid uncertainty. And Fed games? What DC's policy means for your money. When we return on CNBC. All right, welcome back to the CNBC special, Markets in Turmoil. It wasn't just stocks taking it on the chin today. Oil dipping below 80 bucks a barrel for the first time since January. That's before Russia invaded Ukraine. Remember, we hit 120 a barrel in early May. Energy was the worst performing sector in the S&P this week, falling 9%. For more and more, prices are going next and whether further demand construction could possibly be ahead. Let's bring in John Kilduff of Again Capital. He's also a CNBC contributor. John, great to have you with us tonight. Good evening, Frank. Great to be with you. So oil prices are obviously falling on the thoughts that there's going to be less demand. How much of those fears are coming from less demand in the U.S. and other parts of the country and slowing demand in China where the lockdowns just haven't ended the way people thought they would? No, that's right. And I'd say that the uh, demand destruction fears really are, are, have gone global. Uh, given what the uh, various central banks are trying to do to rein in inflation through this you know, curtailing economic activity that goes right to the heart uh, of energy demand. Although I'll say today, no matter what the commodity was, it was red on the screen for sure uh, and crude uh, you know, led, led the way. Um, but as long as China continues to struggle the way it has, and this has been going on for months and even beyond the lockdowns, Frank, the economic data there has just been terrible. And their property market now rolling over and they're trying to step in and do all kinds of uh, economic stimulus to sort of you know, put together a patchwork to stabilize the situation. Uh, it's not good. And, you know, they are key uh, to this market, to the oil market on the demand side. They are as key on the demand side as Saudi Arabia is on the supply side. So to the extent China remains uh, in, in tough shape. Uh, there's a, 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 a severe headwind uh, on crude oil prices. And then, of course, this soaring dollar only exacerbates right. uh, the uh, demand destruction around the world. So, John, hard to, hard to believe we haven't brought this up until now, but uh, last, actually last week, but also this week, the CEO of FedEx really pushing to slowing uh, manufacturing out of China, slowing demand for transports and things like that, calling for a global recession, something that really spooked the markets last week. The report yesterday didn't do the markets any favor, I would imagine. How much of that is weighing on the markets? And then on the other hand, is there any chance the U.S. consumer can come in and save us? I'm looking at the gas prices right now. They're about 15 percent higher than they were a year ago. But that's a big break from what we saw just a few months ago. Is there any chance the U.S. consumer is going to get back out there on the road, get back, back out to traveling and maybe save the oil market? It doesn't look likely right now, Frank. I can tell you that the recent gasoline demand data has been horrible, uh, down a million barrels a day just about versus this time last year. It seems like the inflation damage uh, has been done, if you will, on the U.S. consumer. And driving is just a, a discretionary item at this point that's not being picked up. 
We'll see if we get increased demand from when they take in the harvest now and the farmers for diesel fuel. That's a, that's a bit of a worry for the market. And to see if the leaf peepers here in the Northeast start to, to pick it up. That's something we used to closely watch you know, back in the day, not so much these days. So uh, I'm not sure. Uh, the FedEx report coincides with uh, overseas shipping uh, rates from China that have just imploded. Uh, also, too, uh, the port congestion has seemingly disappeared. So all these sort of demand factors that I look at to try to gauge uh, what the pressure is going to be on crude oil, uh, on for you know demand-wise, and what it's going to do to prices versus the available supply we have, they're not good. They haven't been good for a while, and I think that uh, the last sort of hope for the bulls, if you will is that we get an early cold winter that stokes heating demand and that could save the day uh, for energy investors to a degree. But we'll be right back in the soup again uh, if we start to warm up in mid-January, early February. All right, energy is obviously a lot more than oil. Natural gas has become a bit of a phenomenon globally. Those rising prices, what does that mean for the energy sector and, and how can investors invest in this boom in natural gas? Yeah, it's almost like become a, a meme commodity. Uh, the way it's been going so crazy. <laughs> I'll tell you this, Frank, for starters here in the U.S., going into the winter, as of right now, we're in great shape. Storage levels versus last year, only about 6% lower than, than, than last year, only about 10% lower than the five-year average, which puts them in the range of normal. Okay, let's go long-range meteorologist here for a second. There's a La Nina phenomenon in the, uh, in the Pacific right now for the third straight year. That should produce a winter that we, where we get some cold days, but we'll also get plenty of balmy days here in the Northeast like we have seen over the past couple of years. So we should be okay. The second saving grace here for natural gas uh, is that in Europe, the storage levels there too are rising rapidly. Uh, they are attracting global liquefied natural gas like it's coming out your ears there, uh, record amounts. So they too may get through this, uh, this, this you know, parade of horribles that's been put forth in front of us. Uh, natural gas, though, is certainly the fuel of the future. It's certainly to the extent any of these energy stocks, uh, particularly the integrated stocks, or the pure play EMP and natural gas, like an EOG resources, let's say, to the extent they get taken to the woodshed here with everything else right now, they are definitely buys because the vulnerability uh, to energy tightness and shortages does remain sky high, but I wouldn't buy into the sort of, uh, you know, the sky is falling narratives that have been floating around out there right. over the past couple of months. Yeah, natural gas down 3.5% today, but up over 80% year to date. Natural gas is a meme commodity. You want, might want to trademark that. John Kildoff, thanks for being here. <laughs> All right, still to come, some say chaos in the market brings opportunity. We're going to test that theory when CNBC's coverage of the markets in crisis comes back right after this break. All right, welcome back to the CNBC special Markets in Turmoil. It was another rough week. The Dow and the S&P both falling below their June lows today. But my next guest says stocks are, quote, stupid oversold, and these pullbacks present buying opportunities for the long-term investor. Joining me now with where he's buying is Keith Fitzgerald, principal at Fitzgerald Group. Keith, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. So stupid oversold. That's some strong words right there. I want to start with some of the stocks that you say that People should be buying right now. It's Microsoft and Apple. What's the thesis here? Why is this the right time to buy? 
Well, you know, always time is the question, right? It never feels like a good time to buy. But in fact, if you look at history, it suggests it's almost always a good time to buy, particularly when you have massive sell-offs like this one. If you think about it, the thesis is really not one of individual business dynamics, but one of data. 90 plus percent of all the data created in the history of humanity has been created within the last few years. Apple and Microsoft are at the absolute top of the class when it comes to managing, using, portraying, putting that that data forward in entertainment, in our lives, every which way we turn. Now's the time to lean in. If you gotta buy a few shares, if you wanna buy a lot of shares, that's up to you, but now's the time to step into the fight. So you're saying right now is the time to buy these. I'm looking at both of these stocks. Um, they're pretty, you know, technically expensive, both trading at 24 times forward earnings and dividends pretty, you know, I don't know what to say. It's nothing, but Microsoft at 1%, uh, Apple at a half a percent. Doesn't that kind of break the rules of the environment we're in right now? No, and I'll tell you why. You know, here's the thing. They're expensive in today's terms, but I look at the market as what are these companies going to accomplish? Apple is well on its way to becoming a trillion dollar company by 2030. I would submit that is dirt cheap based on what the company is about to accomplish. Microsoft, there is no way anybody's letting go of these legacy related contracts. The company's moving into customizable medicine, the cloud, all sorts of other things. So the valuations that we look at historically are rear view mirror oriented. I'm looking out at where these companies are going, the role that they're playing in thematic investing, structural changes in our world that are going to occur in the value that's going to be created. All right. One of the other picks is Costco. It sounds like you're feeling very constructive on consumer staples in general. Um, what's the idea here? Is the idea that, of course, we all need food and things like toilet paper, but these companies have pricing power that can then kind of push through inflation? That is a very sharp question. That's very close to my argument. Costco is about making every dollar go further. Because much of Costco's revenue comes from the membership contracts, they are able to manage their supply chain, manage their margins, manage a lot of other things better than comparable retailers. So as long as inflation remains high, as long as the consumer feels pressured, those things are going to play into how people spend money and where they do their shopping. Costco is a logical alternative. I think the company just put up great numbers this week. And, you know, if it's going to be on sale, you know what? I'm going to go to the store and not run away from it. That's an interesting idea right there. So I'm going to ask a question I asked to one of our previous guests. What are the metrics you're looking at? I'm going to go on Instagram later today and people are going to say, look for stocks with X, Y, and Z. Is it about free cash flow? Is it about margin? What's the thing that you're looking at for stocks that can survive and possibly thrive in this current environment? Well, right now, people are going to get caught up in all the technicals. And I've been doing this 40 years, so I've seen just about every technical market you can, you can fathom. Keep it really simple right now. Whose companies are making must-have goods and services you cannot live without? Whose companies have visionary CEOs that are executing to plan? And finally, which companies are at the absolute top of their class? We call that best, not rest. This is gonna be companies you use every day, you purchase every day. For example, coming back to Apple, lots of people are changing the way they buy things, where they buy things, but I've heard of very few people giving up their Apple products despite inflation, despite fear of recession. All right, Keith Fitzgerald, we appreciate the insight. Simeon, I want Thank to get you. some final thoughts from you on this. We're hearing some thesis from, from Keith right there. He's saying, buy best in class, don't worry so much about valuation. Do you agree with that? I do think you have to focus on margins, pricing power, growing dividends, Focus it domestically. There's too much going on outside of the U.S., and I think that'll really play well in that sticky inflation environment. And by the way, for 59 minutes, we did not mention fixed income. I think it's worth noting that credit spreads have held in there in the midst of all this turmoil. You know, it's just like your fixed rate mortgage. 
if there's some inflation, the only the only thing that gets easier are those fixed coupon, fixed coupon payments. But you might have to approach it like a credit arb guy and short the treasuries to protect from the duration risk. So, I mean, that's an interesting thought. So, I mean, if people are looking at corporate credit, are you looking at high growth or worried more about the rating and the quality? I think you tilt higher quality and investment grade is a real opportunity now. But the trick is the curve is upwardly sloping. So you have to have longer maturity investment grade bonds to get that 150 bips of spread, one and a half percent. But then you take duration risk. So what you do is you pair that with a short treasury position and you have the opportunity. Look, it doesn't cure cancer, but you can pull four or five percent out of that in an investment grade bond these days. It's not a bad idea. All right. We did talk a little bit about bonds. I'm going to give you one last word. And we do have to get out of here. Uh, one of our earlier guests, Peter Bookbar, was saying the two year right now is a great investment. Did you agree with that? I don't think I actually got your opinion on that. Well, look, the two year has a solid yield. It prices in what looks to be just about all the possible Fed rate hikes. And you don't have that much duration risk if you're wrong. So it certainly seems to be a pretty reasonable idea, particularly okay. because the long end is still at risk from quantitative tightening. All right, Simeon, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Simeon Hyman of Global Investment. We really appreciate you being here and sharing your insight. That's going to do it for the show. Thanks for watching. The news with Shepard Smith it starts right now.